Welcome back to the Daughters of the Moon podcast. We're grateful that you can join us for another week. Yes, we are. And we're very fortunate today. We have Dr. Connie McReynolds with us. She is a licensed psychologist and certified rehabilitation counselor with more than 30 years of experience in the field of rehabilitation, counseling, and psychology. She is the founder of Neurofeedback Clinics in Southern California, working with children and adults to reduce or eliminate conditions of ADHD, anxiety, anger, depression, chronic pain, learning problems, and trauma. A seasoned and inspiring speaker and author of the award-winning and Amazon number one best-selling book in eight categories, Solving the ADHD Riddle, <laughs> Dr. Connie's wholehearted mission <laughs> is to bring hope and resolution to those who are struggling with the symptoms of ADHD, their parents and teachers. She earned her PhD in re rehabilitation psychology at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, giving valuable experience in the outpatient substance abuse treatment programs at Middleton uh, Hospital at the Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation Neuropsychological <laughs> Clinic at Murder Hospital and the Mendota Mental Hospital Institute. So sorry, I butchered all those things, but welcome to the podcast, Dr. Connie. <laughs> And end of the day, my brain is like, what are these big words? <laughs> but thank you for having me. I'm, I'm happy to be here today. Yeah, so um, we're going to talk about solving the ADH riddle and uh, that was written to change the narrative about ADHD. So I'm really excited because I know I have some grandkids and one of my sons not hasn't been clinically diagnosed, but I'm pretty sure that that's how it is. And I think you see it more and more around us every day. So can you give a little bit of bio on yourself or how you kind of got to this and what led you down this path? Well, I think most of us take kind of a winding tour as we uh, go through life. I don't think anyone has a really straight arrow path uh, for where we land eventually in our lives. And that certainly is my tale. Um, I really started as a rehabilitation counselor in this career field several decades ago. My <laughs> girl. <laughs> We just still keep the numbers though, maybe. <laughs> but uh, the beauty of that background is that when I did obtain my master's degree in rehabilitation counseling, the, the whole theory of that and kind of the premise of it is that you work with the individual and you figure out what their strengths are, but you also identify if there are barriers that are standing in their way. And then you look for solutions, most of the time out of the box, uh, <laughs> to find those solutions. Because back in the day and even today, a lot of these uh, conditions that people are struggling with, what really kind of fall in the categories of traditional interventions are falling short for a lot of folks. And I certainly saw that in the beginning of my career. And then I went into uh, my dog program in rehabilitation psychology, and that's where I worked at the VA in Madison. And I worked at the Meritor Physical Medicine and Rehab Clinic, uh, doing you know clinical internships there in both of those. 
and the whole process still just followed with me. Rehabilitation psychology followed in step and pretty close link with rehab counseling, which again is the strengths-based uh, outside the box thinking about how we can help people really achieve their goals and reach what I call a good quality of life and improve their quality of life. Mm -hmm. So the winding road that went through several states and <laughs> different <laughs> positions, um, I eventually landed where I uh, recently retired from a uh, university setting that when I was brought in, uh, recruited in for that position, part of it was to build a center or an institute and no one really had an idea. So I did. <laughs> and, it, <laughs> and so it kind of evolved from that. I headed in one direction and created some programming for the community in that regard. And we had a very uh, functional uh, contract that was helping individuals with disabilities and uh, providing employment type based assessments that could really help them get back to work. And then the other piece came along was the neurofeedback clinic. And so it was about a year after I'd started the other that this started uh, surfacing. And we really began with a pilot project. I learned about this. I flew out to meet the software developer or really learn about the programs and what they were doing, what they were claiming. And then I thought, well, you know, before I launch this out into the world, I better figure out if it works. So <laughs> <laughs> I uh, decided to run a pilot project for a year and just opened it up to the community. And we invited people that we had familiarity with that were veterans who had trauma, PTSD. We also opened it up to children with ADHD. And those were the two part target populations from the get-go that I really wanted to see, is this something that could work? Because obviously my time at the VA introduced me to a lot of trauma and to a lot of difficulties that veterans were struggling with. And the remedies seemed to take a very, very long time. And I thought, you know, if there is some way that we could figure out how to shorten the time from the type of injury or trauma to where someone is doing better, I think it's worth the investment to figure that out in the same held with children who are struggling to learn. And by the way, that applies to adults. So <laughs> the, the book was targeted to parents and teachers because I really wanted to change the narrative around this concept of ADHD. But the same applies. I've had many adults read this book and say, oh my gosh, you've written about me in these pages. This is my life. Yeah. So that's here we are. Here we are today. That's, that's amazing. And so do, is there similarities then with like that you learned in the Institute that is like a correlation between the PTSD and the ADHD and how you kind of help them along their path with that? Well, I think the correlation is the fact that all of us have the ability to change our brains. And so that's the neuroplasticity. So whether it is trauma from childhood, military, domestic violence, or any host of challenge that a person may go through that lands them having a lot of the residual trauma that's following them because it can come from many different uh, walks of life to ADHD, to chronic pain, to anxiety, panic disorders, OCD, you know, oppositional defiant disorder in children, my least favorite diagnosis in children and learning challenges. So all of them have one thing in common, which all of us have in common and that is that we can change our brain through repetition and training our brain. Mm 
And once I started seeing this happening about 15 years ago, I thought, gosh, you know, I used to have a private practice in another state. And I remember I had one client for two years. I mean, she really had difficulty hanging on to concepts and doing what she wanted, even though she wanted very much to get better. And I'm thinking, gosh, I look back on these people I've worked with over the decades. And I thought if I knew then what I knew know now and could have delivered then what I can deliver now, how many of those lives could be different today? Not that we didn't help, and I'm not saying that all those interventions don't help. It's just, it seems like it takes a lot longer um, mm -hmm. for those. Yeah, absolutely. So what is the narrative then just in a, I mean, it's not short and sweet, but in a short, sweet way, what is the narrative that is out there right now with ADHD? Well, the narrative is that this is something that cannot be treated. There's a famous author that writes on ADHD, and I think, put out a book that's about 900 pages in length um, all about yeah. you know what do you do about this and nothing wrong with that it just seems to me like that's a lot to try to say we can't help someone um, so you know I just think we need to think differently and this is really an outside the box it's an alternative but it's evidence-based so um, neurofeedback was actually developed at UCLA back in the 1970s. This has been around for a very long time. And there's a lot of good research out there about the work uh, that neurofeedback does. I've published some in some international journals myself before I wrote the book. Uh, it, you know, we're going by what we're seeing in the clinics. And I think if you have a good system and you have a good process that's standardized and you can pull your evidence-based data. We are very driven by data. So we do assessments at the beginning and in the middle and the end. After every 20 sessions, I'm assessing. And so I'm not gonna be able to give you a thumbnail short one on this, <laughs> which is it's all about really changing the belief structure, the understanding of all of these conditions. So mostly for children, we know that they get labeled. And many times they're called lazy or they're just inattentive or they're not paying attention or it goes in one ear or out the other. Um, <laughs> they lose all their homework. They lose their backpack. They lose their keys. They lose their shoes. <laughs> you know, their children lose everything from point A to point B. You don't even know what happened to it. <laughs> so <laughs> the key here, I think, in, you know, to kind of get it into a bit of a nutshell is kind of what's, I don't like to go with what's wrong, but kind of like, what isn't working here? Let's find the things that are working. And I think I've stumbled onto something that makes a huge difference in a short period of time. And so if we can get the word out to parents, we can get the word out to teachers, we can get the word out to administrators and to, you know, loved ones who know that they have someone who's struggling with this and that there's hope. And so if it's in one word, it's hope. It's because yeah. people think do you think people are actually listening like to what you're saying? Because I mean, so many people are don't understand like any of this. They don't understand it and they don't try to understand it. So when they have children and things like that in their family and they don't try to understand it, it just does never get better. It, you know, I only say that just mm -hmm. from something I'm familiar with myself <laughs> around mm -hmm. me. But I'm just saying, or Kimmy too. But are people finally listening and saying, maybe, yeah, we can do that with these kids? 
maybe, yeah, we can help these people, these adults too, that have been living in such a world that they don't even like, right? So mm -hmm. is there something there now? Are they really finding this thing so they can help these people? Do you That's think? why I wrote the book. <laughs> <laughs> nice. And our, I hope it's selling so well. <laughs> I really do. Well, and it's why I'm here because we have to start the conversations. We have to let people know that there's something different out there. And one of the things I've always said is the wrong diagnosis doesn't lead to the right intervention. So if we don't know what we're chasing, we're not going to be able to help someone very well. Uh, it's kind of like going to the doctor and having a broken leg and they're checking your ears. That's like, <laughs> mm, you know? <laughs> yeah. Mm. yeah, my ears might be fine, but I'm in a lot of pain in my leg. Look at that. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I think I think it's great. And I'm glad that you're here because I do think we need to get this message out to people and and give them some ways that they can kind of meander through this to help themselves and to help their children and loved ones around them. So what what are some of the things that you can share with us about the ways that people can do this? Well, I think what's really a good starting place is up on my website, uh, which is ConnieMcReynolds.com, which is my name spelled out. I have a free brief assessment there where people can start. So if you think there might be something going on, you can just click on that and take a good look at it and see. Uh, certainly within the book, there's a lot more detail in there, obviously why I wrote the book. Uh, and in the chapters for auditory and visual processing, there are checklists. But I think primarily the starting place is this is not about a child or an adult's vision. It is not about the person's hearing. This is about processing. And processing has been so misunderstood uh, that we have so many labels that children and adults fall in with that don't necessarily take them somewhere that leads to a different place for them that's reliable. And the, these processes are reliable. We measure it. We have evidence-based data on this. And it's really about understanding the root cause of what people are struggling with and how many times has someone who's had ADD or ADHD uh, heard, just pay attention. You just are drifting off. You're just, you know, you're just, you're just wandering off. You're just not paying attention as if it's a willful condition. And it isn't. There's nothing willful about this. So really seeking to understand what the behaviors mean. So much of what we do, at least in Western medicine, is to get rid of a symptom. Mm -hmm. Oh, my head hurts. Okay, instead of figuring out maybe why I have a headache every day of my life, I'm taking a pill to get rid of the headache. But the next day it comes back, and the next day it comes back, and the next day it comes back. Maybe that pill just gets rid of the symptom and I'm not really getting to the core of what's happening here as to why I'm having a headache. And maybe I need to figure that out. And that's really what my work dealt into, was figuring out what's underneath all these labels. Children come in with a vast array of diagnostic conditions and some on a number of medications. And when we peel all that back, we do this 20-minute computer-based assessment, and we can figure out across these 37 areas of auditory and visual processing What's really going on with this child or this adult? Parents weep, adults weep when they find out what's going on. The children experience immediate relief at home because most of the time parents are so frustrated thinking that they're, a, quote, a bad parent 
or I have, quote, a bad child, or we just have, quote, a bad teacher. And so all of that is creating massive amounts of stress in everyone's life. And when we can get rid of all of that, just by simply saying, you know, this is an auditory memory problem here. This isn't going to be improved no matter how many times you say, go pick up your shoes, no matter how loudly you may say it. If I can't remember that you're telling me to go get shoes, doesn't matter how many times you tell me that. So when parents can really understand that this is a memory problem sometimes, sometimes it cuts across processing speed. So children who have low processing speed are many times, and about most of the time, identified as, quote, the slow learner. Well, the slow learner carries a lot of baggage with it uh, in society, in the classroom, in peers of children, and in the um, kind of the tunnel, I guess, or channel or whatever you want to call it, the direction that a child is sent in once that's deemed to be what this child is, is a slow learner. Slow processing speed, we have brilliant, genius children who have very slow processing speed. And when they look slow, they're treated as they are, quote, slow cognitively. And imagine how frustrating that must be to have some sense that you might be smart, but that no one believes it. Yeah, it'd be terrible. It'd be terrible. Yeah, you know, for that person. Yeah, it would mm -hmm. be. So with these tests, then, once you figure out if it's auditory or these different ways, then you're able to learn the best way to kind of work with these children or people, if they're mm -hmm. adults, to make their life easier. So if they're not getting the, you know, repetitive, go pick your shoes up, or why do you always lose your keys or what have it, then then you can move into the solution for it to some point. Does does that, I guess that's a twofold question, because sorry, <laughs> that's okay. brain, my brain works. And so then I guess my second question then is, if children are on medication because of this, does that help also maybe get them off of that medication or reduce that medication? Mm -hmm. Good questions. They were one of one of those with mine. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll go with the last one. You may have to remind me the first one there because sometimes <laughs> I, I need my memory checked at this hour. <laughs> so, uh, so really, what happens is that. Um, hmm, you might have to jog me just a bit. So just <laughs> like, a does, day. Does, it, does it help them once they learn this path, like they've done the assessment, does it help them then be able to reduce their um, medicine? medicine? Yeah. Right. So a lot of times that's why parents are coming. So maybe they've gone down the road of they've tried every medication out there. It ha It works for a while. Sometimes it doesn't work at all. Sometimes it doesn't keep working. Um, and then sometimes there are side effects. And so parents will absolutely need to look for something else. And that's what they're doing. They're searching out alternatives to that. There are other parents that have never gone down that road because they really are cautious about those side effects and they really want something different. And so the good news about the neurofeedback is we really are able to train up the brain. And as 
children and adults, those neuronal pathways as they become stronger through the repetition of the training plan, which is how the brain learns, the neuroplasticity piece. So that's how the brain learns. It's how we wire and change. Then what we see is that maybe they don't need quite as much. So I'm not a physician or a psychiatrist. And so I will say, you need to go back to your prescribing person to really understand, is it okay to start dialing back a little bit? Uh, we had one uh, teenage girl after treatment that service was with us who said she felt like she was on speed taking her medication. And so that was an indication that maybe her brain chemistry had changed enough that she might not need that as much or any anymore. And so those are really the some of the clues that we're looking for and uh, hoping for, because most people would like to be off medication. They would like to be healed and not just you know have to take something. There are some meds, obviously, that people are going to need to take, and I'm not against that. But I think if these are types of conditions that we can find an alternative non-invasive approach to, that we're literally helping the person train their brain to get stronger, and it tends to hold once we've completed the sessions with them, um, why not? <laughs> So can they do these sessions online? Like they can do these sessions with you online mm -hmm. as well as going and see you? They can with us. Uh, so about two years ago, so I am in Southern California, you know, we kind of went through some pretty significant lockdown processes over here. Um, and about two years ago, we were looking at the potential for another a round of that. And I called our software developer and I just said, you know, I have people out here who are suicidal. They can't get to my clinics. I really need a solution here for this. And to his credit, a month later he called, he said he pulled everyone else off of everything else. He said he created this. Um, so we piloted it and it worked and it's worked for two years. So it really doesn't matter kind of where people are setting. Um, I don't do a lot of diagnosis. We do try to understand the root cause of what's going on. And then it's just simple repetition. You know, it's biofeedback. We're able to, you know, measure change through these assessments and kind of see how people are doing. And children typically who've been disempowered by um, the pressures and the negativity that they may say to themselves or things that they have heard, once they get in this and they start realizing they can run a computer with their brain, they get pretty excited and they, <laughs> they start feeling pretty empowered. Uh, and so it starts feeling better for them. And then they start as these programs, as they do better, their programs get tougher. So that's kind of a way we train, like going to the gym. You may start out with one pound. <laughs> I would today. <laughs> <laughs> and you kind of work up. And that's really where we start with people as we start where they are and then help them just train their brain. And through the reinforcement using that neuroplasticity that's how the brain learns everything we've ever learned in life is it's just repetition. It's uh, also why I joke and tell people it's like why those bad habits are hard to break because they are hardwired in too. So <laughs> that's how they hold. And that's how we know these things hold. You know, I can pick up a pencil. I learned how to do that maybe when I was four or five years old and I still know how to do it. Yeah. So, <laughs> you know, things hold. And, yeah. and so does this typically. Our system's a little bit different, I think, maybe than some of the others. Uh, we do a lot with the assessments, and then we have a different way of measuring kind of those processes and uh, getting rid of what we call facial artifact, 
So our system, literally, I didn't develop it. I wish I did. I'd be living somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, what we what we do with this system that's a little bit different is that it uh, zeroes out all the facial artifacts. So eye blinking, even tongue movement, uh, facial muscle movement is an EMG signal. And the EEG system can actually pick that up if it doesn't zero that out. So I think some of the debate in the industry as to whether or not this works, it may be because there are some systems that are a little more effective at mm -hmm. delivering the neurofeedback than maybe some of the others that haven't quite figured that part out. <laughs> yeah. uh, so the developer of our program was a clinical psychologist and a computer programmer. So <laughs> he kind of walked in both worlds and is, you know, was pretty competent at figuring out some of these aspects. So I really fell into a really good system. Yeah, about 15 years ago. Oh, that's wonderful. It's just wonderful what you're trying to do with that because anytime I'm trying to get a solution, uh, maybe it'll stop some of this homelessness too. You know, that we got happening right now where so many people aren't diagnosed. I uh, don't know which way to go. So, um, you know, maybe this is another solution of helping that problem we have. You know, that'd be nice. <laughs> I would like mm -hmm. to see that, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, especially the homelessness. Yeah. Well, it would be nice to take the stigmatism too away from the ADHD in particular. I mean, the PTSD as well, but I mean, there's so many stigmatisms when we label people and give them that label just right off the bat, right? And then from what I'm hearing, it sounds like there's all different ways to navigate through it. So by labeling them and just saying, this is your diagnosis, you need to figure out which, how it affects them in order to help them properly get through it is what I'm hearing. Yes, absolutely. And to wrap back, I think to your earlier question about what we can do about this is if we can figure out, okay, by taking this, the questionnaires in the backs of those chapters, some children truly have only one side of the picture. They have maybe great auditory processing, but when uh, parents will read through that they'll find oh my gosh they're missing their auditory processing or vice versa most children though it's like a hopscotch pattern or a piece of swiss cheese almost i use that to help parents understand because they they often will say well he can do this or she can do this and then they can't do this it's like well if we look at the data here for what we're seeing we can see that there's certain parts of auditory processing that are working okay so when tasks or instructions or activities fall in the wheelhouse that's working, everything's okay. But right next door to that could be something that looks to be similar, but it may require a different type of brain processing. And maybe that's the place where there's a weakness. And so that's where the bottom falls out. It's like, and then parents and teachers will think, well, this is just laziness. This is just willful bad behavior because he could do this and she could do that. And then, and then there's the judgment that comes in on that without the clear understanding that there could be something a lot deeper going on here. That this may not be willful bad behavior at all. It may be this child really cannot do these tasks. And once we figure that out, then I can give parents instructions. It's like, okay, if this is this part's not working over here, so here, you know, let's take these steps and do this. And so if there's more auditory processing than visual, then we go with the auditory. You know, we, we step away from the visual and vice versa. So for 
visual processing, imagine a child who's struggling with visual in a classroom. The teacher's at the board, you're supposed to be able to write this stuff down. With visual processing, a child can, one of those, um, the clues could be messy handwriting. You know, missing words and letters when you're trying to write things down or you just can't even read this child's handwriting at all. Uh, this is the child that may have the lost everything. You know, can't find anything. And so this is not the child that you put up a checklist for. <laughs> you know, that checklist isn't going to work for the child with visual processing, um, but it might for a child that doesn't have auditory processing. So you figure out how to play to the strengths while we're mitigating the weaknesses. And that's half the battle is just kind of understanding this. And in the book, there's tips for parents and there's tips for teachers. You know, if you can kind of get in the ballpark of what's going on, uh, you know, you can lessen some of the stress and the, the pain of living in a situation like this where maybe people don't quite understand what you're struggling with. Yeah. Well, you, you answered my question because I was going to ask, like if, if there was in the book little tips of, you know, things people could try on their own once they've done this assessment and figure out kind of which way their kids are, you know, struggling with this. Because I know like my granddaughter has it and I know we struggle all the time with her because you tell her something 90 times and it's like she can't if she walks out the room and comes back she's forgot whatever you've asked her to do right and that's a classic sign of auditory processing another classic sign is if you ask a child to go do two or three things and on the way they're doing something totally different <laughs> before they even get awesome. 10 steps down the hallway it's all gone and yeah. i just told you this you just agreed and the child's completely confused because if you can't remember that someone just told you something and then you know someone is saying i just told you this and then imagine the confidence died that, that happens with that because now it's like well is there something wrong with me i, I you know and, and then they'll start lashing out and some children will just start lashing out because they're so frustrated uh, if you can't remember that someone's told you something and then <laughs> someone comes back and says, i told you this and that happens too much that child is just going to get frustrated yeah, because they then think that people are telling them this and they start to not believe the person has told them this, because if they can't remember it, then how do you have a reference point for it? You yeah. don't. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so that's where we're writing things down. So if it's an auditory problem, then creating checklists and creating instruction sheets and things that point the child to it's like, okay. At night, we need to put our shoes up, we need to get this, we need to do this, and create little checkoff boxes for them in the language, you know, at the level that they can read and understand. And you can kind of make it a little bit fun. You know, maybe they get a star or, you know, something at the end of the day when they've completed their, their list. You know, maybe there's a reward that comes with that so that they feel good about themselves, that they've accomplished something. Yeah, because I know my granddaughter, she just intuitively does make chess checklists for herself and that does help her because yeah if you give her a list of things that she needs to do well that's not usually successful so that's good to hear and I think that's 
hopeful for people because I, I am sure for the parents, it's frustrating and I'm certain for the kids, it's frustrating. And that's why they end up tuning out and just kind of, um, alienating themselves from friends and people and stuff because they're feeling so defeated by not knowing how to navigate through their days with that in every aspect, right? You got your home and then your school yes. and eventually it's everywhere. Yeah. The lunchroom, you know, go over there and sit down and they're going, uh, what am I supposed to do? <laughs> and then, you know, someone assumes that they're just not paying attention. Johnny, you just need to pay attention. Johnny doesn't have any idea what just happened. Yeah. That's where they get labeled too, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. They really do. And a lot of these children end up being um, kind of on the end of uh, bullying, both in social media, but also in person. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, children, my mom taught second grade for 32 years in the same classroom. And, um, she observed a lot of children's behavior over the years and um, you know kind of the outliers are the ones that get targeted sometimes and so yeah. it's really important for us to pay very close attention to this uh, girls sometimes slide through a little bit easier than boys do because boys will tend to act out a little bit more and when I was writing the book, I actually almost <laughs> thought about um, putting a chapter in about the lost girls because what the things I'm hearing nowadays, uh, even a little bit more so than before, with these school systems, if you're not causing a stink in the classroom, you can slide through. Mm -hmm. And that's where girls are going. They're in the back of the room. They're quiet. And I had a parent tell me the other day that their daughter didn't pass anything in the school said, oh, she'll catch up. We're just going to pass her on to the next class. Yeah. The next yeah. And so they just pass them along. And in the book, I've talked about the hazards of that and that when this happens, girls actually sometimes fares worse, fare worse uh, because the consequences are greater for them as they get into their teenage years and the things that can, can happen. Yeah. Yeah. So then I'm hearing that there's a lot of repetition in whatever avenue it is that you're helping them navigate down to help them get through that. Is that correct then? Mm -hmm. Well, the training plans are based really on those areas that we need to strengthen. Right. And so the training plans look like low impact video games. Uh, so they're not going to trigger the dopamine dump that happens with <laughs> some of these uh, high impact uh, programs and games that are out there that keep people kind of addicted to that. So it's not designed to do that mm -hmm. at all. It's quite the opposite. So we'll have programs that last about two to three minutes each. And each one is kind of targeted for specific areas. If, there, if we identify that there's a hyperactivity and that's in the brain, then we go after that first. And usually we can knock that out in 10 hours. So we can get wow. rid of that and it's gone. It doesn't come back. And then sometimes for people who have that, everything just falls like dominoes. And so everything just starts falling into place. When you get rid of the white noise and the static in the brain, then other things might work better. Uh, in other cases, though, we kind of have to be systematic about how we're going after the training, but it's all based on neuroplasticity and really changing up the brain waves. So we're measuring brain waves. We are training those areas that are a little bit weaker. And as that gets trained, it, you know, it's a little bit slower process from the standpoint that if I take a pill, I'm gonna get rid of my behaviors at this moment or maybe in 30 minutes, but in six hours, they may be back. 
uh, with this, it would not be equated to flipping on a light switch. It would be more easily equated to a rheostat switch where you slowly just turn the lights up and it just keeps getting brighter. And that's really what happens for these folks. And then it just, we hardwire it in so that people don't need to keep coming back. Well, that way they can lead a regular life and yeah, they do. work and do the things that their friends are doing and not feel feel like they belong there. That's amazing. That's right. That yeah, is that's amazing. Right. And it's very hopeful because, I mean, I think there is a place for Western medicine. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> I'll lead by saying that. But at the same point, I think that a lot of times it is such a quick fix of, you know, something's wrong. Yeah, here's a prescription. Go fill that. Instead of, like you said, getting to the root of the problem and then fixing it up from there. Not saying that maybe you don't need some of that, you know, Western medicine to help you along in whatever, you know, with this or any kind of health thing. Mm -hmm. But I love, and it's inspiring and hopeful for me to listen to what you've said, because I feel like, you know, getting down. And I think that I hope it encourages people that are dealing with this with their youngsters to be able to dig down into that, to, you know, find that light, I suppose, at the end of the tunnel. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. Because if, we take a look at behaviors and really strive to decode those to understand what we're seeing. Uh, you know, there's such a tendency to try to just get rid of the behavior by medicating or whatever. And what really I came to understand is if we can slow that down just a little bit and see if we can decipher what we're observing. And so really taking kind of an investigative almost view of your child. What are you observing in your child? Do you see times when things work better than others? And then when it isn't working, what are you observing? What just happened before the behaviors occurred? You know, what happened at school that day, perhaps? Was there a rough patch that happened at school? And if we can really try to understand that before we try to get rid of it. Uh, not that we can't, not that we don't need to deal with these. So teachers are going to go, what? <laughs> Wait, I can't teach my class because of this. It's like, I know my mother taught second grade for 32 years and I taught 25. So I understand classroom. <laughs> yeah. I taught in academe up in, in the university, but I get classroom things. I get this. The problem is we rush too fast to try to just get rid of a behavior thinking that's going to solve the problem. And what we found out is it doesn't typically solve the underlying problem. Mm -hmm. uh, it can create other problems sometimes, or, you know, it just, I mean, it doesn't mean that it doesn't work for some people. And I've been very clear about that because obviously I haven't worked with every person who has ADHD in the world. <laughs> I've only worked with the ones who've come to my clinic, but the ones who've come to my clinic have come because these other things aren't working or they don't want to go down that path. And so we start with the behaviors and trying to understand that. And I always That's start true. with the children and ask them a bunch of questions, you know, just kind of about, you know, what their life is like and just hear them tell their story. And many times, you know, it's in their own voice and parents have not heard this before. So that's always kind of an interesting process as well. It's really understanding each person as a unique individual and seeing what we can do. And that just takes me all the way back to my basic roots in academe when that's the foundation that I started with. That's well, amazing. Yes, yeah, sure is. Yeah, it's it's amazing oh, and it's, it's very hopeful. 
Yeah, very inspiring. Yeah, yeah. it really like is. It a lot. So yeah. if you had one piece of advice or something that you'd want to share with our followers uh, along with this, what would what would that be for them? Mm -hmm. It's really that there is hope. There's hope and we need to really be looking for these alternatives to these processes that we just almost throw away as non-treatable. And, you know, that really has been, has become kind of the mantra that I've operated with in these last years, that we have the wrong perception of this. I am absolutely convinced that we do not understand what we're looking at. We've fallen into kind of a convenient trap of calling things certain things and thinking we understand it. The label doesn't explain anything. The label may get you in the door for some services somewhere, but it doesn't tell anyone who you are or what you're about or what you've lived through. And that is really the key to this is we need to dig down, take a minute to try and figure out what's happening here instead of <clears throat> us just thinking we know what it all means because we don't. <laughs> I love that. That's excellent. And I, I, I do. I, I hope that that helps people. So can you tell people the name of your book and where they can find you? I know we talked about it a little bit earlier, but just as a reminder to them. <laughs> sure. So my website is my name, C-O-N-N-I-E-M-C-R-E-Y-N-O-L-D-S.com. Good Irish Scottish <laughs> name. <laughs> Courtesy of my father. <laughs> um, but on that website is a link to the book. So the book is Solving the ADHD Riddle. So it's the real cause and lasting solutions to your child's struggle to learn. And that's available on Amazon through other online booksellers, Barnes and Noble and such. And there's a contact form there. As I mentioned, there's also the brief and free assessment. The contact form, I encourage people, fill that out, send it to me, include your phone number and maybe the essence of what your questions are. And I will call you personally and speak with you about 15 to 20 minute consults, typically what I do for free. With that, wow. to just answer questions and just kind of see if this is something that might fit for people. Because people, some people have never heard of neurofeedback. Some have never heard of biofeedback. Uh, so it's all a non-invasive process where we're just measuring brain waves, like we measure heart rates and respiration. We're just measuring that it's fed into the computer and people interact with that. And through that, then they get instantaneous feedback of really how their brain's working. And it's fascinating. People become really enthralled with this because they get data that they've never had before about how their brain's working. And that's kind of a fascinating process. Well, so with that contact sheet that comes straight to me, I schedule all the intakes. I do all the intakes, uh, kind of regardless of where someone's sitting, uh, because you know that's what I bring to the picture. And then our services, whether remote or in person, are with someone. So the sessions are 30 minutes, usually two or three times a week. And we do 20 of those, which is 10 hours of brain training. And then we come back and we reassess. We see what the progress is and if we need to do another set of 20. Um, most industry standards are 20 hours, which is 40 sessions. Some people get done sooner and some people are gonna take a little bit longer, really depending mm -hmm. on the uniqueness of each person's situation and how their brain responds. So I've been oh, doing it for 15 it. years yeah. and we just love what we do. We love it. <laughs> you may get real busy after this. <laughs> <laughs> well, I certainly hope so because I feel like there are so many children and so many people out there 
who have lost hope and they oh, don't need no. to lose hope anymore. There's a change. There's like a new sheriff in town. <laughs> that just popped <laughs> into my brain. <laughs> I love it. And oh, I, I, it's, you have I such a great personality and so much information that you gave us. And I'm, I'm excited for people because I think it is going to give that little bit of a light to, to show mm -hmm. that there is a way, because I know most of the people that I know that are dealing with it with children are just frustrated and the children are frustrated oh. and there's no, they can't find that light for each other even. So right. they can't. Mm -hmm. And this is really about breaking through that darkness. We have to break through that. There is more out there than what people have uh, come to know. Again, this really has been in the last two years. And I had said I wasn't going to write the book until I could deliver the services where people needed it to be delivered. And so when we uh, when we su succeeded at that a couple of years ago, that was the green light that I needed wow. uh, to really get serious about writing the book. It had been in the back of my mind for a very long time. But I just thought, I'm not putting another book out there. This is, oh, here's what's wrong with your child. Good luck with that. Uh, <laughs> it, there had to be solutions. Absolutely. There had to be solutions. And there are a lot yeah. of solutions in the book. There's a lot of ways at getting at this. And then for those who are inclined, um, you know, our services are available. And we can help people. And we do. Beautiful. Wonderful. Yeah. Yes. We have, we have a lot of it in our family, the PTSD and things like that. So um, yeah, this is really good to hear, Mary and mm -hmm. Yeah, we really do. We've tackled a lot of the PTSD. I've worked with a lot of veterans yeah. over the years, a lot of children who've come through foster care. Um, their domestic violence situations certainly can lead to a lot of that. And you know, we just know this works, and it works so much better than what I used to do in those days in my internship in the VA, where we did do good work. It just took such a darn long time uh, for that. The you know, anger management program was a year long uh, for these guys. and Or, you know, we, some of them attended for a year because it took a while. <laughs> but, um, you know, there's different ways of doing things now. And I think, I just feel like we've turned a massive corner and I'm not sure when it happened, but I really feel like we did it somewhere in the last few years. I don't know if the pandemic kind of spurred a lot of this along. It certainly did us in getting these services pulled together. And, you know, Zoom and computers are so much more powerful now. And we have so many ways of connecting so differently than we did five years ago. We wouldn't have thought mm -hmm. of doing mm -hmm. a lot of this five years ago. And the world has changed. And I really just want to shout this from the mountaintops that there's hope. There's light at the end of the tunnel. There's a way to get through this and we can help people and we're here for people. They are, if they yeah. need our help, just give me a call. Well, that's wonderful. Thank you so much for joining us. It was so wonderful to get all this information and I know it's going to help people. So we're so excited that you could join us and, and give this message to everybody. So thank you. I'm so grateful for you having me on. Thank you so much. Thank you again. Thank you so much. Yes. Yeah. And everybody else, tune in next week. Please do. <laughs>